Our scripture reading today is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16 through 33. This is the Lord's word. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardships through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who was made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his holy word. Good morning, everyone, once again. Today is the second to last sermon on the book of Acts. And as we have looked through the book of Acts, we, see, we have seen how God has started the church and the importance of the church. Paul, Peter, Philip, the other apostles went out after Pentecost to preach the good news that the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled, that Jesus is the Messiah, the prophet who speaks true words, the priest, the only one who can intercede on behalf of us before God, and the true king, the only one who can rule us. Well, he's arrived. This Jesus, O Israelites, is who you've been waiting for and expecting. He has come. Repent, therefore, and believe. 
Paul himself was called not only to speak to the Jews, but to the, to the Gentiles, those who do not have the promises of Abraham, those who do not have the Old Testament scriptures. But he persuaded them as well. Look at the world around you. Look at your own heart. You who seek beauty. You who seek purpose and meaning. Do you not know that those things point your heart and lead you to something greater? And that thing that is greater is not a philosophy or not words, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And for Paul, in the beginning of the church, this gospel was constant, a never-ending theme that has allowed the church to be built with deep, deep roots. It is a message that he was never tired of preaching or teaching. And it's a message that the people of God never tired of hearing as well. To know that Jesus' love for you is constant and assured that you have been saved from your sins while you were sinning. And that the Lord knows the deepest recesses of your heart better than you know yourself. And he has found you lacking. But because of his great love, he sent his son Jesus to forgive and to cover, to make you whole, to bring you to Christ, to bring you to him. As Paul went preaching place to place, the church began to grow. And as you can imagine, as a church grows, there needs to be some way to organize the people. Well, people were coming from all over the world, and we had to feed them. We had to, to house them. So he organized that. There were those widows who weren't getting the, the proper rations that the church had promised. So he raised up deacons to serve those who were in need. And as the church started to grow even more and more, and as Paul had the foresight of knowing that one day he will be with the Lord for him, right, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He knew that he would pass away. He knew that Peter would pass away. He knew that the original witnesses of Jesus would pass away. And Paul said, we need to raise up the next generation. And he looked around and said, where are the men who know the Lord, who love his word, who can protect my sheep. And so elders were raised up by the Lord. Elders who could teach, elders who can lead, elders who can protect. And the church started to grow. And the gifts of the people of God started to be utilized for his kingdom. Here in this passage today, 
I want to impress upon you another sign of the burgeoning church. Another sign that the church of Christ is continuing to go in the direction of holiness that the Lord desires us to move. Here in Corinthians, Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, a church that he loves deeply. And he starts to reflect upon basically the book of Acts and his ministry. And he looks back and he sees that one of the most important things about his witness to the people around him is the fact that he himself, well, was willing to play the part of the fool in the eyes of the world. That he himself was willing to die to his own identity. Those that which made him Paul before he met Christ. In order that Christ himself may shine in him. You know, when oftentimes when I talk to people who are looking to go into ministry, or when I talk with people here perhaps who are looking to, to continue to serve the Lord, one of the things that we have to share with one another is our weaknesses, our foolishness, our inability to follow God. The worst thing that we can do when we raise up someone to be a pastor or raise up someone to be a leader is to put them on a pedestal and say to them, you must reach some level of moral perfection in order for you to lead us and to lead us well. But in fact, Paul here admits that it is through his weakness and to make his weakness known that is proof that Jesus himself has changed him. You know, oftentimes in our world today, people like to complain. People like to talk about what makes their life so difficult. They like playing the fool, if I can put it that way. Because at least by playing the fool, they will garner some attention. At least by playing the fool, they, they have some sort of identity. This isn't the foolishness that we're talking about. This isn't the foolishness of saying to one another, my life is harder than yours. Because that type of foolishness we, we see simply leads to more attention upon me. That this is how I have suffered. That this is why I deserve attention. That this is why I deserve grace. This is why I deserve mercy. And this is not what we're talking about. This is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a foolishness that we ourselves live that is covered by Christ, that shows in our foolishness that our love for Christ and our joy in Christ 
usurps anything else that might have been markers of who we are. You see, even Paul understood that as the church started to grow, as thousands of people became baptized, that in the midst of the church, we needed to make sure that the gospel itself was being worked out amongst the people. So even Paul understood his foolishness. It's remarkable here in this passage. It's full of a lot of irony. It's full of sarcasm. Um, in the Greek language, there isn't like quote, quotation marks or italics to, to show you where they are. But if you read that, you can, you can hear it dripping from him. Because the people in Corinth were, were very proud people. But Paul saw that in their pride, relationships were, were, were coming apart. That sexual morality was running rampant. That any, any type of fabric of community in that church was being destroyed because of the pride of the people that were there. But Paul himself recognizes that he too was a fool. Look at verse 32 and 33. He ends this sort of diatribe with sort of exposing his biggest weakness. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hand. So this, this event occurred in Acts chapter 9 when, when Paul himself first met Jesus. And he himself was converted to Jesus. He heard the voice of Christ, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? He was blinded for a time. He went away to, 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 to think and to pray about what happened to him. And he realized that he had heard the voice of the Messiah. And after he heard the voice of the Messiah, and after the power came upon him, he was preaching the gospel fearlessly, the power of God. And at the end of this, end of chapter 9, it says, well, I was let down in the basket like a scared little child running away from the king of Damascus, afraid of what he would do to me. You see, Paul here is giving his testimony saying, listen, this last verse here isn't about, I got away. Smart. But the last verse here was about what a coward I am. Knowing the power of God, knowing what he can do, and like a scared little child put in the basket. tail tucked between my legs, I ran away scared. A fool, someone stupid, someone dumb. And if you recall simply the, the story of the apostles, all of them, human-like, sinners, 
not understanding that Jesus had to die and saying to Jesus, you cannot die. We want you to stay here and make a kingdom here. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan. Do not speak to me. Or you simply see the stories of the Old Testament. Every single character of the Old Testament, if you read their story, you have to shake your head going, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And every time I read Exodus, I'm always amazed. Here are people who are brought out of Egypt. They saw the 10 plagues. They saw the the sea cover um, the the Egyptian army. They were led into the wilderness on their way. It's, It's a straight shot to Israel. It's a straight shot. They saw all the miracles of God. They should have known better. But all of them could not see what God was doing. And that whole generation had to die. And none of them saw God. You see, Paul's understanding of the gospel, of understanding that we are fools in this sense, that none of us deserve salvation. No one. And that none of us, even when we are saved, can ever, ever obey God perfectly. No one. And instead of putting on a facade that says, look at me, I'm a, I'm a growing Christian. Look at me and my works. We, like Paul, must say, I'm as foolish as anyone else. There's no way I can follow God. I am saved by his grace and grace alone. As you walk with the Lord more and more, God will humble you. The more and more that you think that you are growing in righteousness, the more and more you're going to start to realize, I am growing more and more, well, not in righteousness, but being a Pharisee, of growing in my rule-keeping, of growing in my judgment to others. And you will see that when your relationships in the church become more and more distant with someone else. Because that's what happened in the church of Corinth. But as you grow in the Lord and grow in his understanding, well, no more silly arguments. The ability to speak true things in love. The ability to understand that only God himself is perfect, knowing that our faith is just that, it's faith in God. And being excited that Jesus still loves you 
I do not know when God will account for any of your lives. But I do see the same thing in Paul that we need to see in ourselves. That when we are ready to go to the Lord in glory, when God calls us, our ability is not to say, we've done X, Y, and Z for you, Lord. But it's our ability to say, God, your love for me is immense. Thank you for your love for me. And Lord, my love for you is imperfect. But just the knowledge that I do love you is is evidence to me that I belong to you. For Christ's love compels us or towards love and good deeds. This is the fruit that Paul wants to see in the new church. The knowledge of foolishness that we ourselves, well, we can't save ourselves from beginning all the way to the end. It is only Christ and Christ himself. The second thing that Paul does is, is, is he talks about his identity and how he throws away all of his identity markers for the sake of knowing Christ. And he does this in a very sarcastic way to the people because he knows that the church in Corinth, the people are bragging about who they are. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I'm bright. I'm rich. I've been with this church longer than you have. And Paul, knowing that his credentials are better than anyone else's credentials, stands up and simply says, you think you're a Hebrew? You know I'm a better Hebrew than you. You think that you are the brightest of the Pharisees, the brightest of of the Sanhedrin, the leadership? You know that I am better than you. There's not even a question. You know I'm better than you. You know that in in every religious marker that you want to put out there, that I, Paul, am better than you. Now, Paul says this not to, to brag, but Paul says this to expose the foolishness. The foolishness of making those things your identity. Riches will fade away, as our good brother Joseph prayed. Our identity of who we are and what we made ourselves will fade away. Our religious working works will fade away. But all of those things mean nothing because it is my identity in Christ and his love for me that makes me who I am. Who are you? I'm someone loved by Jesus. That's who I am. No, no, no. Who are you? Like, where do you go to school? I am someone who's loved by Jesus. 
Are you married? Are you single? Do you have kids? I, I'm someone who's loved by Jesus. And then people should look at you who do not know the Lord and say, you are crazy, you're a cuckoo. But we can say with our hearts, if you want to make me a fool, then I am a fool in your eyes. But Christ is all I need. You know, I've made this point before, but you will be forgotten. Can I say that? And I don't, I don't mean to say that in a way that's very like, oh my goodness, Pastor Young, make me feel so like unloved. But you will be forgotten. Let me put it this way. You guys know your parents well, right? Hopefully, right? I think anyone here knows their parents. Your grandparents, you sort of know you know, pretty well, maybe a little bit well, right? What about your great-grandparents? How much do you know them? Have you got a picture? Have you got a little story? In just three generations, you've forgotten them. That's less than 100 years. Put it this way, your children's once your children become grandparents, okay? So look, look at your children. Once they become grandparents, those kids will not know who you are. And you say, well, Pastor, that's kind of sad. It's not sad because you, you want to know why? Because Christ knows you. Christ loves you. Because Christ will never forget you. Because Christ has you. And by God's grace and his mercy, if he keeps it, that he keeps his covenants to the next generations. Your great-grandkids will know you as well. we are working for what? We are working to simply know Christ and be known by him. Now the fruit of this, once again, is, is a church who recognizes that we are fools amongst each other. One, again, that we, that we can do nothing to save ourselves from, a, from a, the first time that we say, I believe in Jesus, all the way until the Lord calls us home. It is by faith and faith alone that we enter into his kingdom. How freeing is that for all of us? And humbling it is. The second thing is that we do not lay out any markers for one another. Oh, I'm better than you. I'll be remembered more than you. I'm more loved than you. I'm better at this than you are. Instead, we come together saying, we have nothing except for the love of Christ. And so when we interact with others, it's the love of Christ that compels us to fellowship with one another. It's the love of Christ that makes us humble with, before one another. It's the love of Christ that enables us to grow together in him. 
And what happens in the church of Corinth, all this bickering, it goes away. For as you know, 99% of fights, whatever fights you may have, no one remembers what you fought about. All you remember is your heart and that person's heart. And that's what Paul is aiming at. You, church of God, Grow in your love, not by your power, not by your strength, but by mine. You see, the only way that that any of this works is where the gospel is preached and taught constantly, and this, this and needs to be there, and the Holy Spirit animates it in us, that we begin to love the Lord and love one another. It must be the love of Christ that compels us. It must be the love of Christ that drives out our insecurities. It must be the love of Christ that drives out our desire to make a name for ourselves. It must be the love of Christ that marks us as who we are. And so Paul makes this statement to show you and to show all of us. And he's able to make it because he's up there. But in the end, the gospel message is this. We all fall short. For even Paul's standard of what it means to be a good man falls short from the standard that the Lord places upon us. Be perfect as I, your heavenly Father, is perfect. Keep the Ten Commandments, which is basically love me with all your heart and soul and mind, and love one another with all your heart, soul, and mind. And when we realize that that law just crushes us, that no one can keep it, the eyes of the Lord are on us. And he's writing down everything. And he knows that each and every infraction, even the smallest, means that the penalty, penalty is death. We know that the only way out of this as if God comes down and saves me. And he has. Church, you don't need to impress anyone in this room. There's no one to impress. There really is no one to impress. You don't need to impress God either by how spiritual you are or how spiritual you aren't. There's no one to impress. It is simply the sure grace of God and his love for you that you need to receive. For that love will compel you to love him and love others. There is a foolishness that leads to death. 
You know what that looks like. But there's a foolishness that leads to life. Be a fool for Christ. Be a fool for him who was a fool before the world that he may garner for you salvation. Praise be to our Savior. Praise be to our church. Let the Lord reign and let's let his love once again compel us for love and good deeds. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy in all things. And Father, we see how Paul was able to, to go from place to place to preach the gospel. He endured much, Lord, suffering, shipwrecks, being punished, being whipped. And all these things he was able to do because your love compelled him. That he was able, Lord, to be mocked because your love compelled him. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, as a church to do the same thing, Lord God. Again, not because of our works, but because your love compels us. Lord, who are we? In the end, who are we? We are simply people loved by Jesus, loved by you. Yes, we've been given tasks to be husbands and wives, to be mothers and fathers, to be sons and daughters, to be friends, to be workers, to be students. But all of these, Lord, all of these are under, submission, under the submission of our identity in you. So Lord, bless our church. Root us in the gospel and help us to express that rootedness in our love for one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.